We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast, bringing you big ideas from the small island of Tasmania. And this week we are putting the E in STEM. We're talking about engineering. So that means that I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Sarah Lydon, and my name is, of course, Dr. Neve Chapman. The show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. So you can go to edgeradio.org.au for more information on the good things they're up to lately. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land and which we are recording, the Palawa people as we record on Lutruwita, and acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respect to elders past and present. So I'm really excited for today's episode because I've wanted to talk about this topic for a really long time. So today we're talking about 5G. So Sarah, can you tell me a little bit more about what we're talking about and who our expert guest is? So today we're welcoming Zach Harold, who's a PhD student at the School of Engineering, who's going to talk to us about 5G. So Zach's a PhD candidate looking at wireless communications and previously has looked at mechatronics engineering for his bachelor's degree. Awesome. So are are we going to start with like what 5G is? Because I have no idea. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So um, Zach, I know that many of our listeners have probably heard about 3G, 4G, 5G before, but... Can you actually explain to us what that actually means and what the key differences are between the technologies? Yeah, certainly. So uh, when we refer to, well, the G, for example, uh, that's shorthand for generation. So 3G is third generation of cellular communications, 4G, fourth generation, 5G, fifth generation of cellular communications. The cellular communication standards that we use are how mobile phones and other devices that are roaming and out in the world can connect to the internet, make phone calls, text messages. Why do we need different generations of that technology? Yeah, so uh, as with most technologies, uh, as we get better and better at manufacturing and make new discoveries on how to uh, improve technology, we would like to distribute that out into the world. So the biggest improvements from generation to generation in cellular communications are faster communications, more reliable communications, and supporting more people at any one given time. So how will the introduction of 5G change people's lives? Well, the biggest change that I see uh, in the near term uh, is in urban centres. So the big focus of 5G is a expansion in the available frequencies that we can communicate on. So by expanding all of the different frequencies we can talk on simultaneously, uh, we can support more people using 5G at any one time. So if you've ever been to like a a big stadium before, you might notice that uh, your phone doesn't work too well. That's because generally in a stadium you'll have tens of thousands of people in something that's as big as a few thousand square metres. So to have everybody's phone all simultaneously pinging back and forth to say, hey, is there any text messages coming through? Is there any phone calls coming through? You end up with a huge amount of congestion. Where 5G fixes that is by allowing more people to talk simultaneously. What do you mean by like a frequency that it operates on? Yeah, so uh, the best analogy that I can come from here, so we're talking in the electromagnetic spectrum. So when I say frequency, we're basically talking about light 
but in all sorts of ranges. So like microwave radiation or like traditional AM FM radio, funnily enough. So uh, I believe Edge Radio is broadcast on 99.3 megahertz. Sure is. Yep. So uh, that's the frequency that that communication comes in from. Uh, And the electromagnetic spectrum, everybody contributes to it all simultaneously. So all of the other radio stations are also broadcasting into the electromagnetic spectrum in the immediate area. And the way that they can all talk over each other, but we still be able to hear things, is we can isolate out a particular frequency and say, okay, I just want to listen to that bit. So a good analogy for that might be if you're trying to communicate to someone using a piano and you want to talk to a lot of people simultaneously, you can tell someone, hey, just listen to the A chord, just, just listen to that one. And you, you listen to the B, you listen to the C. And so when you hear a ding that's at your frequency, you know that's for you. What, does the, the, what do the frequencies have to do with my phone? Yeah, so just like with that piano example, your phone needs to be able to talk back to a cell tower. It needs to be able to get into the internet somehow. What the cell tower will do is it'll broadcast out in, in all frequencies basically and say, hey, I'm here. If you want to talk to me, send me a message. And your phone will negotiate with the tower and say, hey, I want to talk to you. And the tower will say, cool, I want you to talk to me on this frequency. So going back to the analogy, the G chord, you're going to listen on that one. And so that's frequency division multiplexing. That's how uh, most uh, communication standards operate now. So then are the companies, without naming names, that are like more consistent or have better coverage or, you know, that your phone can... I'm guessing when you go out of coverage, your phone can no longer talk to the communications tower because you've gone out of range. So it can't access that frequency channel that it would be sending back information to. Why is that? Why are some? Of, why do some of them have more coverage than others? Yeah, so the uh, best way to explain that is uh, cellular communications, as the name implies. We break up the whole world into cells. So we take a little area and we say one tower is going to go here and it's going to service all of this area. And what defines how far it can service is basically earshot, but in the electromagnetic spectrum. So... Going back to the piano analogy, if I hit that G chord, only people that can hear the piano at all are going to be able to communicate this way. If you're too far away to hear it, then no coverage for you. And so typically within an Australian context, uh, the telecommunications companies that provide the best coverage are the ones that can have the most towers and over the widest area. So typically that's dominated by Telstra. Uh, because they've had a very strong network uh, from uh, the inception, basically, when the Australian government privatised our national network. So other companies such as Vodafone, Optus, etc., typically start from a a false start there because they didn't have access to that government-created network. So, Zach, how will the introduction of 5G actually change how people are using this technology? So I think the biggest way that it will change how people use this technology is they'll be able to rely more on their phone and their mobile uh, internet connection to give them a connection into the internet. So right now most people, the way they use uh, their connection to the internet is when they go home, they've got a home internet connection. That's fast, that's reliable, that's as good as they can get. 
and then their phone connection is typically a secondary choice. Not as fast, maybe not as reliable, but it's there. Uh, where 5G looks to be really promising is that it closes the gap between what you can get from your home internet versus what you can get from your mobile internet. So <laughs> is there the potential that 5G data could make infrastructure like the NBN redundant then in the future? No. So the reason why I say that is because once we've got those cell towers that give us uh, service to the um, mobile users, once we've got that mobile connection facilitated by 5G, that only gets us from the phone to the tower. To get to the rest of the internet, we need to get out of that tower and into the wider world. And where the NBN really helps here is that we've standardised on fibre optic connections for connecting us to the wider world. It's all well and good for you to have a really fast connection to the cell tower, but if that cell tower isn't connected to America, for example, you're going to have a pretty poor experience of using Facebook. But then, so like um, like home internet though, MBN, like does that, mm -hmm. is that as needed, I guess, in the future if we can just connect directly to the cell tower from our mobile device and then through the infrastructure? So for certain installations, uh, I would say no, but for other applications, we'll still be using um, the NBN. It's really down to what's going to be most effective to install. So in a really dense urban environment, installing a fibre optic cable like the traditional NBN, that's going to be superior because you've got that infrastructure physically very close to you because you've got so many other people around you. And because you've got so many people around you, uh, that density problem that cellular networks face, even though 5G addresses it and makes the uh, solution a lot more uh, broadly applicable, it does still exist. It is still there. Um, but then when you've got, say, a rural customer, someone who might be thousands of kilometres away from the nearest place that could actually get internet connection, having something like 5G is a lot more useful for them because you don't need to lay a thousand kilometres of fibre optic cable. You can set up two antenna, which is much cheaper. I, I'm not still 100% sure, though, like that I know how it works, to be honest. So <laughs> when you mentioned antenna there compared to, is that just so that the antenna can then channel your thing that you want to communicate along the frequencies that you want to communicate on? Yeah, so I think the uh, easiest way to describe an antenna is kind of like a resonator uh, in a piano. So the way a piano makes noise is you uh, press a key and then it smacks a hammer onto an actual bit of string that's tuned to vibrate at a particular frequency. So if you pull that out of a piano and just hit the string, it's really quiet. It doesn't go very far. But the actual chassis of the piano amplifies that signal and then it can resonate outwards and go a much further distance. An antenna in the 5G context does that as well. It amplifies up a signal and directs it in a particular direction. So you can communicate over a much further distance. So essentially is 5G just sending like the communication across more frequencies on the electric magnetic spectrum so that there's just more chance of it getting there quicker. That's the biggest uh, change in 5G. So the, the best way that I could summarise 5G is that it is 4G, but with expanded limits. So there's more frequencies available to, for you to use and some of the other parameters that are used uh, that were fixed and set in stone in 4G 
are now more flexible in 5G. So a lot of people like um, are talking about like being concerned about 5G because of all of the infrastructure that's needed. But essentially, is that just like putting up antennas around the place so that we can resonate the connection, like the frequencies more? Correct. And I would also really like to point out that... Um, that description that I gave for 5G before is uh, 4G, but with the limits pushed. There is nothing really preventing a telco actually running a 5G network the exact same way they run a 4G network. So the same tower configuration, everything. But they prefer not to. They would actually rather have more towers in a different configuration, but the limits that 4G has baked into it mean they can't set up a configuration that way. So 5G sort of just gives telcos the flexibility to go, oh, finally, I can put a tower over here instead and it's not going to interfere and it's not going to cause any problems. Why does it facilitate them to be able to do that? Uh, the biggest one is just having more frequencies available to talk. Okay. So you can have more pianos simultaneously playing notes because you've now got more keys on, the p- on each piano. Mm-hmm. So each tower is not at full capacity, but it can service more people because it can... Uh, restrict its range and communicate to a lot of people locally. Well, listeners, I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am because I'm finally getting someone who knows <laughs> something about it that has done all the research that I can just ask my questions belligerently to. <laughs> so you're listening to That's What I Call Science. I hope you stay with us for the next part. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about 5G and communications engineering. My name is Dr. Sarah Lydon, and I'm joined by Dr. Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Zach Harold, from the School of Engineering at UTAS. So, Zach, you're currently undertaking your PhD. Could you tell us a little bit about what you're researching in that? Yeah, so at the moment, my research is focused on, so what changes could be made to 5G to make it better? So... We've improved going from 4G to 5G. What improvements could then be made for a hypothetical 6G? I say hypothetical there because the name is not actually set in stone. So what is significant about your research topic? Yeah, so the exact area that I'm working in is I'm taking a handful of proposals that have been discovered and presented by other researchers and I'm seeing how those potential proposals work when they're used simultaneously or in other combinations of each other. One big proposal that's been uh, suggested for a new standard is expanded frequencies, so going up into even higher frequencies than 5G uh, utilises. Another is uh, proposing uh, adding materials to the environment itself, so different paints for buildings or different um, coatings uh, for walls to better propagate a signal. My research is on seeing how using both of those things simultaneously would actually uh, operate. So could you tell us a little bit about the the engineering tools and practices that you use as part of this work? The biggest tool that I have to use is reading at the (laughs) moment, is uh, going through uh, databases of published papers and just seeing what other people are doing right now. After that, My next biggest resource is the computer that I've got in front of me for just trying out and experimenting with ideas in a simulation. So just seeing, hey, if I did try this, 
what does it do? Oh, it actually works pretty well. Okay, oh, I'll know that one. Its claims aren't as good as I would hope they would be. I'll leave that one off to the side. How do you, like, actually measure that, though? Like, are you just putting it in, like, some sort of computer simulation software and looking at the change in an output or something? Yeah, so at the moment, the way that we're doing this is... uh, Myself and uh, another PhD student that I'm working with, Daniel Brown, we've uh, developed uh, some simulation software that we're writing together. Uh, And what we can do with that is set up an environment and simulate how communications would work in that environment and then change the environment, run that simulation again, and then compare the results of the communication. So... Uh, how fast were people able to communicate with each other? How reliable was that communication? What was the latency like? How long did they spend waiting for things to come back and forth? Uh, and from there, we can do statistical analysis to work out, was this environment actually better off? Or was this one actually the better one? Or was there no real change and it was just statistical variance? Do you think that there are any potential environmental impacts of moving towards 5G? So, for instance, um, will 5G devices have a larger energy requirement? Could that lead to increased demand for electricity or increased demand for materials to actually manufacture 5G devices? So, I, from the research that I've read, there isn't that great of an expectation uh, for a large environmental impact from 5G. There is going to be a mild negative on as far as energy consumption is concerned because in order to communicate at those higher and higher frequencies, uh, you need processing devices, so the computers that are in those mobile phones. They need to be able to operate faster and faster and faster to keep up with the amount of data that's going back and forth. So there is an expectation for an increase in the requirements for energy, but... That's also then being offset by other technological advancements in efficiency. So how much compute can I do per unit of energy? So as that advancement comes along with 5G, they should level out. So there's no particularly exotic material requirements um, for 5G compared to 4G. Um, It's mostly just that energy. So with the, the previous generations of communications infrastructure, is there a point where that is kind of like phased out so like people can't communicate in 2G ways anymore. Yes, so uh, 2G, I think the proper name for 2G is CDMA, I could be wrong on that one. Uh, So 2G is largely already phased out so if you've got a a 2G operating phone unfortunately it's uh, not going to be making many phone calls or text messages anytime soon. Uh, 3G, the next standard after that, I believe there's no major plans for phasing that at any time soon because there's a very large amount of uh, devices that still operate on 3G. In fact, uh, Telstra just announced that uh, because they're going to maintain that usage of 3G devices, um, but they also still want to repurpose some of that spectrum, they're going to be doing a hybrid technique where they're going to be offering 3G and also steal some of the frequency for 5G usage instead. Is there any way that this change in like the number of frequencies that are being used impacts uh, people in any way other than that they get faster devices? There shouldn't be any uh, major changes that people notice in their day-to-day lives. But, uh, well, 
the primary reason for that is these frequencies that we're talking about are largely unutilised. So at the moment, they're not really being used in any major capacities for the general public. Um, but there are some examples where it is being used in more specific niche industries. Uh, so for example, uh, weather reporting um, relies on around 24 gigahertz uh, for analysing how clouds form because that particular frequency interacts with water really well. So you can do a sort of radar to analyse clouds. And has there any been any evidence that you can have 4G, 3G or 5G technology, you know, sending messages out on the electromagnetic spectrum at any frequency damages human health or in any way? To date, there is still no research that says there is any uh, way that these communication standards could harm people, um, not without running them massively outside of their specifications. So mm -hmm. um, typically a Wi-Fi modem that you'll have in your house, uh, its antenna and its broadcasting system uses about five watts of power and that's distributed out over the entire range that it has. Does it just depend on like where the frequency sits on the electromagnetic spectrum? Because obviously X-rays are on the electromagnetic spectrum mm. and we can't expose ourselves to excessive amounts of those unnecessarily because it could cause harm. But that's just because of the nature of the frequency that that sits on, right? Correct. So as you increase the frequency that you're communicating at, you increase the amount of energy per photon, basically, that uh, carries that light. So as you move from infrared, which is far below visible light, uh, up to visible light and then into ultraviolet, that's when energy, uh, the photons themselves carry enough energy to potentially ionise uh, atoms and molecules. That what does that they, mean? Uh, so ionisation is basically the light interacts with the material uh, that it comes into contact with and it can, for lack of a better term, bump an electron off of that material that it's working with. And because it can bump an electron that then makes that material potentially chemically reactive in some way. Uh, mm. So that's why UV light has the potential for causing sunburn and skin cancer because there's enough energy there that can actually start bumping electrons around and actually start heating up uh, what's hitting yeah. your, your skin. And I think that's an important th point that you've made is that uh, you know even sunlight is something that's a frequency on the electromagnetic spectrum. Like I think sometimes when we talk about things in like the technical science speak, it seems like it's something new that we're pushing into the environment, but it isn't. It's something that already exists. And in lots of ways, we're just not utilising what's already existing. And it sounds like 5G technology would essentially just be helping us to utilise existing frequencies that we're currently not. Yeah, correct. Um, so I, I guess it's also good to probably put into context where 5G sits in that spectrum. So... Uh, we see visible light um, that's in the nanometer uh, wavelength. Uh, so you'll hear people talk about electromagnetic spectrum using two different reference frames. Uh, some people talk in terms of frequency, uh, which is how many oscillations per second uh, the light makes. And then you'll talk about wavelength, which is the distance that is covered during one of those oscillations. Um, they're used interchangeably and they do mean the same thing. Um, but so uh, visible light is typically around a couple hundred nanometers. 
and then infrared light is in the uh, few hundred micrometers and then 5G tops out in about a millimeter. So it's still massively below even infrared, which we still can't see and still is largely considered harmless in day-to-day life. Um, So how long will 5G last? So I would imagine that 5G will be around for quite a long time. I would imagine that people will be using 5G devices on 5G networks probably for at minimum another decade from now. Um, 5G's adoption has been quite slow compared to 4G and 3G. Um, I guess because the perceived change in uh, day-to-day life for people hasn't been as dramatic. Um, Things are good enough for most people. Like The phone works largely the way they need it. There's not a driving necessity to move to 5G as fast as possible for particular people. Uh, But in certain circumstances, from the telco's perspective, they're seeing a problem everywhere because even though you might only go to a stadium once, uh, maybe a month at at most, uh, from the telco's perspective, they're seeing people at the stadium all the time. So they've always got a problem of too many people in one particular spot. But from your perspective, you've only got that problem occasionally. So there's not a big public rush to move into this. But from the telco's perspective, there is. They want it. Um, So what's in the way of mass 5G adoption? Uh, So I think a lot of what's in the way of mass 5G adoption right now is a bit of distrust um, in the world. Uh, So obviously we just had the global pandemic still raging in a lot of parts of the world. Uh, So that interrupted a lot of public works projects all over the world right at a key time when 5G was getting started, when, for lack of a better term, boots were on the ground, ready to start putting up towers. And so then having uh, controversies added into the mix as well. Um, uh, There's been a lot of distrust in how our infrastructure is being built, Um, some warranted, some unwarranted. And so I think what would really help uh, get 5G adopted is to trust the experts and to try and get the public on board. Okay, and with that, we'll say thank you to Zach Harold from the University of Tasmania for being an awesome guest and answering all of our questions about 5G. And thanks to my co-host, Dr. Sarah Lydon, for uh, preparing today's episode. My name's Dr. Neve Chapman, and I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Also, if you could give us a review, that would be really great to help us spread the good word of science, technology, engineering, and maths to more people. Until next time, thanks and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.